Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah and Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Moments in Weed, our companion series to great moments in weed history in which we talk about current events happening in the world of cannabis. And today we've got an interview with a very special guest, a fantastic cannabis journalist, Amanda Chicago Lewis. Isn't that right, Bean? Yeah, somebody who has written really important, impactful, and in-depth articles about cannabis. We're talking to her today about an article she's written about social equity in cannabis, the attempt to have the cannabis industry remediate some of the damage done by cannabis prohibition. That's obviously a goal that we hugely support here, but as you're going to hear, the reality of it has not always been as positive as we would have liked. Yeah, that's right. In fact, the attempts at achieving social equity in the cannabis industry have kind of done the opposite in a lot of ways. After fighting for so many years for legalization, now we fight for its just implementation. And it's thanks to voices like Amanda's that we know what's going on in the social equity programs, like the one in Los Angeles that she reported on In this fantastic article for the New Republic, we'll put the link in the show notes. Also, fun fact about Amanda Chicago Lewis, if that name sounds familiar, it might be because you've seen it on a card at the end of Pam and Tommy. That's right. The tremendous Hulu series was based on Amanda's reporting about the Pam and Tommy sex tape and, you know, how that ended up getting out. So we congratulate her on that success. It really is a fantastic show. I've seen the whole thing and and I truly love it. Really great performances and a really interesting story through and through. And as you're going to hear, she is not just a cannabis reporter. She is a bit of a head or a quote unquote daily weed smoker. She's one of us. And that's something that really comes through in her reporting. She cares about this culture. She cares about this plant and the people who consume it, grow it, sell it, distribute it. One of my favorite articles that she has written was really blowing the whistle on the whole idea of cannabis patents that could really lead to the Monsantification of cannabis. Big agribusinesses coming in, using their power to basically take over cannabis genetics. If you heard our episode last week about ChemDog, you know, that's who used to be in charge of cannabis genetics growers and breeders for our Patreon subscribers. We're going to link that article for you and many of her other articles so you understand where she's coming from. And of course, we do appreciate your support very, very much on Patreon. Yeah, that's right. If you already support us on Patreon, thank you so much. You may well be watching the video version of this episode right here, which is one of the perks. You can see us waving at you. And we truly appreciate it because our patrons allow us to make this show independently the way that we want to make it. There's nothing more valuable than that. If you do not support us on Patreon, but you're curious about how you can, please check us out at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. That's greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And check out all the awesome bonus materials you'll get for just throwing a buck or two our way every single month. 
It's a win-win for everybody, and we would truly appreciate your support. Of course, if you don't have the ducats right now, but you do want to help us out, please tell your friends who might be interested about great moments in weed history and help us get the word out. So without further ado, let's get into this interview. For starters, Amanda, how did you end up in this crazy game that we call cannabis journalism. I got my start in journalism in Los Angeles in like 2011. And I smoke cannabis every day. And uh, LA Weekly was like, hey, you seem to like know a lot about weed. Do you want to write more about this? And we just went from there. I was a national reporter at BuzzFeed for two years in 2015 and 2016. Uh, And one of the big stories that I did when I was there was about the felony exclusions in many of the places that have legalized cannabis, where if you had a cannabis felony or any kind of drug felony, you weren't allowed to participate in the industry in any way. So whether that was like owning a company or being a bud tender, nothing. That clearly had some racial bias because it wasn't that people who had no experience in the illicit market were completely excluded from the industry. It was the people who were caught who who were being excluded from the industry, which was disproportionately black people, which was pretty ridiculous. So starting with just like that law and then going through all these other things, um, I wrote this big story in 2016 that was about how black people were being excluded from legal cannabis. Um, And then shortly after that, we saw political will for the first equity program in Oakland. So I've been paying pretty close attention to equity for the last seven years, you know, since it was like sort of a fantasy thing that people wanted to make happen through the execution. Um, So I've definitely been waiting for the moment when it would be appropriate to thoroughly examine what was going on with the equity programs. And this story was that moment. Well, why don't we backtrack for just a second and, and define our terms as far as equity goes or social equity when it comes to cannabis, starting with the ideal. And then in your reporting, what did you find the reality to be? Equity is generally an umbrella term that refers to any aspect of legalizing cannabis that is meant to atone for the racial disparities of the war on drugs, right? It's been well-established and proven that cannabis laws have been used disproportionately against Black people in particular, even though Black people are not more likely to use or sell cannabis. So with that in mind, legalization in some ways itself was meant to remedy that harm. And generally, there's like three different buckets that are uh, talked about. There's expunging or clearing past cannabis records, right? Because if you have a cannabis conviction, maybe this makes it hard for you to get an apartment, get a job. There's community reinvestment, uh, which is where usually tax revenue from the legal cannabis industry goes to quote unquote communities of color. This could even mean direct payments in the style of reparations. This is what Evanston, Illinois is doing. And then there's the most contentious aspect of equity, which receives the most attention, the most oxygen, and that's around licensing. Who gets to run and own a legal cannabis business? And there are a lot of different ways that states and municipalities have supposedly been trying to help disadvantaged communities 
own or partially own cannabis businesses. So what equity looks like in practice is very different from this sort of ideal of quote unquote helping, you know, give people a boost. In many places, equity is very empty. As a promise, it's used as a cudgel in some places where, you know, wealthier businesses use equity to prevent or slow new businesses from joining the market and competing against them. And even in sort of the best case scenarios, which are sort of few and far between and, and not very good in themselves, very few folks are are truly meeting the like highfalutin promises of what equity was meant to be. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. So I, I did some reporting for KCRW on the social equity program here. I interviewed Kat Packer, who is like the, you know, L.A. cannabis czar. And the thing that struck me again and again, right, was that these are total, total squares. Like these people have very good intentions, right? But as far as an understanding of the cannabis market now, you know, like she was talking about, oh, we're giving 100 licenses to people, uh, you know, to open dispensaries, to social equity applicants, right? But the issue there is, They just closed down thousands of dispensaries owned by minorities, right, across the city of Los Angeles and then and and basically like limited supply so that everybody in those localities started turning to other options, to gray market and black market options. And then basically the bureaucracy of actually receiving your social equity license and all that stuff. By the time you get it, you've already spent all this money on uh, on store space, right? You've already done all this stuff. And then it's like, in fact, as the social equity applicant, you end up being a victim of it because you've spent all that money. You've now opened a dispensary, but there hasn't been one in that area for so long that everyone's just buying black market weed now, right? And in the end, I think, you know, it's like the thing that's been ignored is that this was an established marketplace of billions and billions of dollars for a long time. But at this point, it's so mired in shit that will anything else work just besides straight up reparation? I think what you're saying is really legit because like there is a fundamental misunderstanding of supply and demand that happens with all cannabis licensing. If we really want to talk about any kind of like atoning for the disparities of the war on drugs or like having a functional legal cannabis market equity aside, we need to really rethink the entire notion of the government gets to pick and choose a small number of businesses that are allowed to sell legal pot. Because if you already have, you know, in New York, and it's really efficient drug dealers who have been operating completely illegally, or whether it's in Los Angeles, and it's people who've been operating storefront dispensaries that appear legal to the public, those businesses are already there. It does not make sense when cannabis is ubiquitous. And cheap and easy to get on the illicit market for the government to say, we're going to choose a really small number of people. And those are the only people allowed to sell. That is setting everything up for failure. And I think to some extent, speaking for myself, there's a bit of a capitalistic fever dream in all of this, which is like, oh, if we can make a 100 people who got fucked over rich, then... A hundred years of this racist, oppressive system 
you know, oh, you know, it's all evened out. It's like, even if it had worked the way it was designed to work, of course, to the hundred people who get licenses and find economic success and can employ people, that is, of course, a fantastic goal, but it is so completely inadequate to the damage that has been done to people's lives and in these communities as to be almost offensive that that is the ceiling of what equity is going to accomplish in that bucket. As you say, using the tax money to support communities seems to be a lot more successful and straightforward. And of course, expunging people's records and getting people who have been incarcerated out of prison, that has been much more successful because those are goals that are straightforward. Before we dial into your specific reporting on Los Angeles, I want to ask because, you know, we we have a national uh, listenership and an international listenership for this podcast. Any place that goes from prohibition to legalization is going to face these issues. Where, if anywhere, have you seen this type of equity program work? And what do you think are the best guidelines to have in place, the best rules of the road to have good outcomes? Generally, people seem to believe that Oakland is doing better than most places. However, there are so many caveats there, starting with equity businesses in Oakland were given loans by the local government to help start their businesses. And then when they weren't able to repay those loans, the city sent collections after them. So this is our, you know, best example of a functional equity program. And also that those businesses are mired in an insanely competitive market where there's been a lot of organized theft in the last couple of years. But are they in a better position or is the program slightly better than in other places? Yes. And also, is that because it's like a very small city with a robust history of activism um, that has been, you know, comparatively agile in fixing the program as mistakes have come up? So it's, it's, I don't think, you know, certainly, yeah, there are no simple or straightforward solutions. I think the best example that sort of, you know, I think helps people understand how complicated and difficult this is, is the idea of federal legalization, right? So from an equity perspective, if the feds were to legalize tomorrow, that would likely benefit the average pothead, the average person who consumes cannabis, because that half a million to three quarters of a million people nationally who are being arrested for possession every year, now we're not going to see those arrests because it's not going to be illegal. And we know that those people are disproportionately black. However, if we legalize tomorrow, Amazon is likely going to take over the industry. Amazon is already advocating for legalization because they know that they could take a huge amount of market share. There are activists and and advocates in equity who don't want federal legalization because they want equity businesses in the states to gain more of a foothold before the floodgates open and big business comes into cannabis. Ultimately, it's it's about power and influence and money And that's something that's usually, you know, in the hands of white people. The fact that, you know, social equity stores have been limited in number and, you know, acquiring 
uh, a social equity store has taken a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of compromises uh, on the part of folks in Los Angeles means that we see very few Black-owned dispensaries, but we've seen a lot of people who have lost lots of money chasing social equity. I mean, that's, I think, beyond even the illicit market, we don't really talk enough about how the promises of social equity supposedly providing opportunities for generational wealth to black and brown people has actually caused more harm than if those promises had never been made because of the hundreds and hundreds of people who not only put their time into trying to get a social equity license, but and and this is just in Los Angeles, hundreds and hundreds of people, but like borrowed money on bad terms, got into contracts with investors in a very lopsided fashion, sold their family homes. You know, I was told about multiple people who lost their homes and were now living in their cars because of all the money they had lost trying to start social equity businesses. That's super messed up. And it brings to mind another group of people who are supposed to be helped by this program, which is what we like to call sometimes the legacy market. People who were growing and distributing cannabis under the medical cannabis laws that were looser or even outside of any legal system. And the same thing. Oh, you know, come above board, spend money to get your farm licensed and to meet all of these government standards to participate in the system only to find that the bottom falls out of the wholesale market for growers, only to find that there was supposed to be limits on the competition from massive grows that were then uh, brought in anyway, and many people who had been part of that underground legacy market for decades have found themselves in the same position where they put their chips on the table, tried to play by the rules, and were not only not helped, but were actively fucked with. A lot of what we're talking about has to do with faith in the system, right? Humanity's faith in the systems laid out before us is ultimately shaken at this time. And we're people who've been buying cannabis a certain way, right? Reliably for decades at this point, right? And now we reach this point where the state is trying to, to interfere. There's all these business interests interfering, right? People were promised that they would have a social equity license. They didn't get it. A program that's, there's programs all across the country that say, if you were a victim of the drug war, you will have an upper hand. You will have a leg up, right? But like so many other things, our faith in these things are dashed. And when that happens, we don't act in the best interest of the community or the world or the industry. We act in the best interest of ourselves. For cannabis people, what that means is you're going to go back to buying cannabis from the illicit market, right? Now, there's definitely activists there who say, oh, we were once fighting for legalization. Now we're fighting for how legalization is implemented, right? And as I've always said on this show, this is the 40th time I'm quoting it, we should not so readily trust the authorities that unjustly prohibited cannabis for so long to now justly regulate it, right? Uh, and I still carry that mistrust, as do a lot of people who have now gone through these experiences. Hell, a person who's gone into a dispensary and spent 30 extra dollars because of taxes on an eighth walks out and says, well, that's the last time I'm going in there, right? So the question is not, 
are they going to fix this and everything's going to be hunky-dory? But with all this dysfunction, what is the lasting impact if you are a cannabis business owner, black or white or impacted by the drug war or not? What does the future look like based on your predictions? Oh, I have very few optimistic thoughts about the future. <laughs> it's okay. You can share them. <laughs> you know, we have done a really poor job of legalizing cannabis, this piecemeal state by state, legal on the state level, illegal on the federal level, individual cities and counties making decisions on their own. It's really not going well. But I also don't see it changing in a super significant way, meaning federal legalization anytime soon, likely because in my view, it's a very complicated issue that's very low priority. So I don't really know why anyone would make progress on that, because that's exactly the kind of thing where no one makes any progress, even if 90% of the country wants legal cannabis, um, which is true for medical. Oh, yeah. Apparently, majority means nothing. Right. And it's 60 something on rec. So it's like, it's not like people don't agree on this. It's that like, no one understands how complicated it is. And it's not nearly as important as a lot of other really important things that are going on right now. So my like future prediction for a while has been that like, we're going to continue to see parallel markets for a long time, probably like a mm. fully illicit market a gray market that maybe seems legal to people but is not in fact legal and maybe people are getting sick from products in the same way as the vape crisis and then like a fully regulated legal market that is i don't know running off like dwindling investor capital like i don't know are we just going to keep like bringing in successive rounds of dupes to fund that market because that market is not profitable for anyone i think it ultimately stems from profound misunderstandings one prohibition was based on any number of false premises. But the biggest one is that cannabis is relatively dangerous when in fact cannabis is relatively safe. Never mind a very effective medicine, it's just not dangerous in relation to the way it has been treated. Under prohibition, it was considered so dangerous that we're going to kick down your door in the middle of the night and stick a gun in your face and shoot your dog to get an eighth of weed, and then brag about it. That irrational fear of cannabis, that canophobia, is also baked in, yes, that <laughs> I'm calling it a pun, it is baked you in... You resist. <laughs> no, I couldn't. <laughs> it's baked into our attempts to legalize and regulate it, which are being done by the same fuckwads who were in charge of its prohibition. And the second fallacy that this is based on is that capitalism is an inherently equitable system when it is not. There is no other segment of our economy that we can point to and say, oh, well, only if we could treat cannabis like this, then everything will be great. No, capitalism is fucked as is our political system, as are our institutions. So I do always kind of like to bring these discussions back around to the ultimate equity is that we stop arresting people. The ultimate equity is that we stop using cannabis as a means to fuck with people and communities that the government finds frightening. And on that level, I do think we have had 
really important and impactful change in society. All of these other fights, we just have to keep at them. But if I can do my phrase that I've said 40 times or more on this podcast to bring it no, around. I refuse. <laughs> <laughs> motion, motion fails. Uh, <laughs> cannabis needs to transform capitalism, not the other way around. We cannot look to capitalism as our means to salvation as a community and as a culture and as a country. We have to look past that and make fundamental changes. It's going to be very difficult, but reporting like yours, Amanda, reminds us of what we're up against, shows us the realities on the ground, and gives us inspiration to not just spike the football when we get quote-unquote legalization, but to always understand that this is a process and this continues to be a fight for social, racial, and economic justice. So I just want to really say thank you so much for your reporting in this article and over so many years. Yeah. Thanks, man. I'm trying. I'm doing my best. Yeah, you are. And also, uh, you know, finally, just before we we let you go, so of course, your fantastic reporting on the insanity of uh, Pam and Tommy's uh, sex tape leaking has been turned into a tremendous television show. So huge congrats on that. That's right. Pam and Tommy, the Hulu show, is based on Amanda's reporting. Uh, really, really excellent reporting. And I'm wondering, when is Hollywood going to option one of your cannabis investigative pieces and turn it into a limited series? Any hope of that? And if so, which is the one you would want to turn into a TV show? Yo, my understanding is that Hollywood gives zero fucks about cannabis. It's true. <laughs> I've learned this the hard way. <laughs> yeah. So like, I've barely even try that anymore because like no one cares <laughs> i know oh my god that's so true I i've literally been out here for years trying to hustle my next cannabis documentary being like this is gonna change the world and they're like no please just write this movie uh about people in prison dancing uh to coordinated pop music uh which will never come out can't wait to see <laughs> that movie. That's how I make my living. And you probably never will because it'll never get made. But uh, somehow that's what sells easier than a documentary about the history of cannabis these days. But that's just the world we live in. Uh, it, it, regardless of that, I think we're just so thankful that there's a voice like yours in cannabis journalism. Uh, you know, Bean has been at this a long time. I've been at it a, a, a slightly less long time, but a long time nonetheless. And your perspective and reporting has just been so refreshing. And we're really proud and honored to include you among the ranks of cannabis journalists. You're a really oh, you fucking guys, good one. You guys are too nice. It's <laughs> really great, like, gassing me up in the middle of a Monday. I love it. Was that a weed pun? <laughs> Gassing, yeah, gassing yeah. you up. No, Come on. I almost He's called reaching. you out when you said something stemmed, and I was just like, is that, is that, is that a <laughs> No, the, the pun for this episode is it's baked into the system. Perfectly yeah. crepulent. Baked into the system, Baked man. into the system, bro. Well, I was also thinking when you were talking about cannabis changing capitalism, there was like that Twitter meme or something that's like, if everyone on the planet would just smoke a joint for one hour, the world would know peace. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? 
And, and you know what's what's fucked up is like deep down, like I actually believe that. <laughs> Studies show it would take ninety minutes to two hours, but I, you know, you're, when you're if you're fact checking a meme, you know, you, you've lost the plot. Yeah, and it's DMT and not weed. We all know it's DMT and not weed. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> on that note, uh, any, anybody or everybody want to have a puff on the way out? It's been yes. What do we have? US, I, guess. I really wish that I could, but I have to get back to work. <laughs> Me too, which is why I'm going to hit this thing. No, love you guys very dearly and very, very flattered that you even included me on an episode. Oh, absolutely. It was only a matter of time. You are truly a uh, a force of nature out there, Amanda. We really appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for being on the show. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.